Hey guys, Bear Grylls here, just to say, super excited for Charles Thorpe's podcast coming soon. You guys are going to love this. What a great guy he is and so many great stories. So enjoy these and remember, above all, never give up. Now, I personally believe that there's nothing better than a great adventure, whether it's to another country or into the backyard. It can have an amazing ability to change not just the way that we see the world, but also the way that we see ourselves. That is exactly what you're going to hear about from our incredible guests. On Great Adventures, I'm going to be hanging out with actors, athletes, thought leaders, and of course explorers, some old friends, and some new, to discuss how being adventurous benefited their lives. My name is Charles Thorpe. For over a decade, I've been chasing down epic stories professionally for magazines and television shows, and now I'm bringing those conversations here. They're really firing all those guns. Of course, they're blanks, but you can hear them and you can feel the concussion. What you see on screen is actually happening in front of your face while you're flying along. So all those people, all that pyro, all the other helicopters, everything else, you're thinking to yourself, I am not going to be the one who screws this up. That was helicopter pilot Aaron Fitzgerald and his time for Great Adventures. When I was young, I would always spout off about how I didn't want to join the military, but if there was a war, I would go, which sounded like a real safe deal to make with myself until there was a war. So I ended up in the Army. I was an 82nd Airborne. I didn't end up going to the original Gulf War. By the time I finished training, it was all over. So uh, I spent most of my time at Fort Bragg, and then I did a year in Korea as well. So I was, a, I was an enlisted paratrooper, and I was an artillery specialist. I wasn't a pilot when I was in the military. Right. You started that part of your life later. Being a paratrooper, obviously, there's a little bit of love and there's a little bit of uh, passion for being up in the air. So tell me about the, the training for that and what that experience was like. Well, airborne school is, is uh, three weeks of fairly intense training. If you're an athletic person and you're not a quitter, then uh, it's, it's a school that you're going to get through. Basically, the, the most military schools or most of the more elite schools are designed to weed out quitters. So as long as you don't have any quit in you, you'll get through the airborne school. But it's three weeks and they start out, you know, teaching you how to land and all that. And it's a ton of running. And then you work your way up into the 34-foot tower and then the 250-foot tower, which we didn't do when I was there because the winds were too high. So we went straight from the 34-foot tower into the uh, C-141s, which what we were jumping at the time. That's how old I am. Tell me about those initial jumps. What was part of that experience that you didn't expect going in? It's funny. You, you, your body just does what you're trained to do. So the door opens and, you know, part of the back of your mind is looking at an open door of an airplane going, oh my God, I have to jump out of that. Am I going to be able to do it? Am I going to freeze in the door or whatever? And then as soon as you start going through the motions and doing everything you're trained, you just stand up and walk straight out the door right behind the guy in front of you and the guy after you goes to and it goes exactly like they trained you for. And the training is amazing. They've been doing it a long time, since about 1940, I think, is when the test platoon started or 39, somewhere in there at the very beginning of World War II. So they've got it down to a science. They know how to teach people uh, how to do it, how to make it safe enough. It's still kind of a rough landing no matter what. It's kind of like a getting a hard check in hockey or a hard hit in football. That's what it feels like when you land a round canopy with a whole bunch of gear on you. It's a good sport for young guys. <laughs> yes. I've, I've been skydiving a few times and obviously that's a thrilling experience, but what were these elevations that you were going at? Yeah. And skydiving, you generally, and I'm only an A-list, A-licensed skydiver, so I'm not, I'm not an expert on it, but generally you, you jump from much higher. So those 
civilian skydive sport parachute jumps are generally conducted from the 10,000 to 12.5 range, somewhere in there, 10,000 feet. Uh, and 99% of that is done in the daytime. Uh, but the way we did it in the Army, the, the static line mass tactical jumps are done from 800 feet AGL and always at night. The only time I jumped during the day was during jump school. And then the rest, 82nd Airborne, really only trains at night. So we jump very low uh, in pitch dark. So that's a very strange experience, but cool. You know, it's thrilling. Yeah. What were some of the places that you guys got to jump from? I jumped in Korea a little bit, but uh, obviously all my training, it was all training. I didn't, I didn't have any combat jumps. We loaded up for a trip to Haiti, but got turned around in flight. They just waved the big stick, the 82nd Airborne, and then everybody changed their mind and we didn't end up even going, but we were loaded up. What was the feeling in your gut when you were en route for the first serious one? You know, if that happened today, I'd be really nervous and, you know, real scared of the, what the future may bring and how it's going to play out for me and all that. But at the time, I was just so ready to get in the game. You know, you're training and training and training and you get yourself mentally fine-tuned to go in and do what you're trained to do. That That's, as a young person, that's that's what you want to do. You're trained, you want to go. So we were excited. What drew you to learning how to fly in a helicopter? Flying helicopters was really the only thing I ever wanted to do ever since I was a kid. It's, it, was, it was always my ambition, but I, I wasn't connected in the aviation world growing up. I didn't really know anyone who was a pilot. I didn't know how to start or who to talk to about it or, you know, even what was the first step. Uh, so it was just kind of a, like a dream. You know, it's something you want to do, but you don't have a plan. So then after I got out of the Army, I was, I was much more focused and I, and I knew how to find the answers I needed and I knew where to start uh, and I knew how to focus my energy and be organized about getting myself trained and doing all the research. And, uh, you know, that was before, before Google and before the internet and all that. So it took a little more effort to find the resources I needed, but I charged right into it because it's the only thing I wanted to do. So I went and found a flight school and went and started training pretty much full time. Um, uh, for those of you that have gone through the, the flight training process as a civilian, it's, it's pretty expensive and that's a big setback for, for most of us, including me. So I ended up working uh, two or three jobs at a time and, and spending pretty much every waking minute working toward that goal. If I wasn't at training or flying, I was working to, to pay for those lessons. So I went in both feet, full throttle from the very beginning. And, uh, and it's, ever since, that's been the only thing that I've, that I've done, the only thing I've wanted to do. I still love it every day. And where were you doing the majority of that training? Uh, that was in Long Beach, California, just south of Los Angeles. So I was living in Venice uh, at the time, which is part of L.A., uh, and then driving down to Long Beach every day for the school and then working in L.A. And, uh, and I just commuted back and forth till I finished training. And then I ended up getting my first job fairly quickly. Uh, at the time, it seemed real natural. You finish training, you go to work. But now I realize that that was pretty unusual to get a job flying helicopters with that low of time and that low level of experience that I had when I started out. So I was very fortunate and got into the employment side of it very quickly. And then, then it's just a matter of working full-time, flying every day, getting your experience. And, and that's what I've been doing ever since. It's a pretty beautiful place to be training, to be honest. I mean, where were you guys doing the majority of your flights? Well, at that time, they were still building parts of the L.A. Harbor. So there was a big terminal island, they, they call it, I guess, where they offload container ships. And they're basically just man-made islands. So the, the first step is to build a big breakwater, and then they fill it in. And so there was a giant one that was the size of an airport that was just open, flat, raw dirt. So we did a lot of our training right out there. So I was surrounded by 
the ocean and around ships and cranes and all that stuff in an industrial area, but in a very pretty part of the country, you know, Long Beach is nice and the weather's nice and all that. So I was really fortunate in that sense. Today, you couldn't squeeze a helicopter in there if your life depended on it because it's bristling with cranes and trucks and everything else. Right. How did it feel to really get the first control of the stick? How did you feel when you were actually, okay, this is every decision I make matters to where this machine goes? It's funny. Uh, my, the first solo I can remember, and everybody probably has a very similar experience. You, you, it's just like I said with, with jumping. You, you, you're trained so well and you're, and you're so ready. All the muscle movements are subconscious practically, right? So you pick it up, you fly in. And then I was on the downwind leg coming around the pattern. And that's when it hit me that I was all by myself in this machine. And uh, I, I was kind of celebrating. I might have yelled woo a couple of times and then might have let the rotor RPM decay and saw my first red light and immediately corrected that. And I've been pretty focused ever since. <laughs> what were some of those first trips that you actually made? Did you do any sort of civilian trips other than jobs that, that you were able to, you know, I've always wanted to go here. I've always wanted to fly here. And this is a path I was really excited to take for the first time. Yeah. Um, a helicopter, the, particularly the training helicopters don't have a lot of range. So you can't, you know, you're not throwing darts at the map and going to Aspen and all kinds of glamorous places, but Within the small range of a training helicopter, I was able to go to Santa Barbara, and then I took a longer trip up to San Francisco. So I'm kind of a beach guy. I love the ocean. I love being on the shoreline. So for me, just flying up the beach was was really all I wanted to do, and I, that's what I still enjoy the most is working out over the ocean. Today, I was out flying over the desert, which is fun too, but I love the ocean. I always gravitate toward the ocean. I live at the beach, so flying over the water and, and over the shoreline has always been great for me from the beginning and still today. So you've been a part of a few epic jobs, obviously. Now you're associated with Red Bull and they're just known for pushing boundaries. I have a bunch of friends who work over there and it's just every time that they contact me, it's always like, you guys are doing what with a what and a humans <laughs> participating in this uh, mindful human. So it's an absolute blast to work for them, I'm sure, and work with them. So tell me about those first few major jobs where you're like, I can't believe I get to do this for a living. Well, the very first time I had any contact with them was in about 2005 or 2006, and I was flying a helicopter at a, uh, in a race, a NASCAR race, uh, at a racetrack called Infineon. It's at uh, Sonoma, Sears Point, up in uh, the Bay Area. And the Red Bull Air Force skydive team was there. And for whatever reason, their jump plane fell through or whatever, and they were scrambling looking for a helicopter so that they could do their skydive into the uh, national anthem. And so they were frantically, the guy's uh, name that ran the program was Othar, with our Lawrence and he, he found me at the, at the uh, landing zone and asked me if I wanted to drop the team and I did and I guess I did an okay job because they asked me back and then two weeks later or sometime shortly thereafter I was at the uh, MotoGP race with them at Laguna Seca and Monterey and that was a ton of fun. So then I ended up dropping them for various uh, skydiving events into stadiums, racetracks, things just like that. And then uh, one day, Luke Aikens called me. He's one of the, the Red Bull Air Force guys and became much more famous later on. And we'll get more into that in a bit. But he called me at about 7 p.m., 6 p.m. one night and said, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Can you get a helicopter and meet us at Cal City, which is this t little town out in the desert that has a, a drop zone that's closed. So they use it for testing now. He said, we want to do some jumps. So I said, sure, I can. I'll round up a helicopter. I'll meet you out there. We went out early in the morning. And I landed at Cal City and got out of the helicopter and talked to everybody and met some familiar faces and some new people and then went around a corner into the hangar and there was a guy named Felix Baumgartner wearing a space suit. And I was like, what are we doing here? It was all top secret at the time. Nobody knew anything. So it was a shock. And that was my 
my in, entry, entry, intro, entry into the, uh, the high level Red Bull world where they were working on Stratos in, in total secrecy at that time for, and for the first few years, nobody knew what we were doing. So signed a million NDAs, got read in, went and did it. We ended up jumping all day that day. Uh, from 15,500, which is was high for a helicopter, particularly over the desert because you don't have any any terrain reference around you. So you're basically flying on instruments uh, over the desert and the wind's blowing 80 knots up there. So it was exciting. It was a really fun uh, entry into the higher world of Red Bull. So I worked on that project for about three and a half years or so on and off as it, as it progressed. So I, I worked as the drop pilot for the, uh, the what they considered the low altitude phase of the development and testing of the pressure suit. So those jumps were all around 15,000 or so. And then when they went up to the next phase, which was a series of jumps at 30,000, then I switched into the camera ship role. So then we were just chasing those guys as they came down because helicopters don't go up to 30,000. So I'd meet them at about 10 or 15 and then film them the rest of the way down. And then that progressed into more. We ended up being the recovery team and the telemetry tracking team and all that. We ended up with four or five helicopters on the day of the jump. And we were many miles downrange out in New Mexico. And it was an exciting thing to be part of. And it was really cool to be out there for the whole progression of it, you know. Yeah, man. I mean, that's what I'm talking about is there's those moments and those stunts and those events that happen where people are taking machines to the brink of their their ability. So how does it feel? You know, I've talked to a few people who have participated in either automobile stuff or helicopter stuff or, or astronauts where you're doing something that isn't commonly done in the field. So how does that feel for you to take a machine beyond maybe where you've taken it before? Yeah, for sure. The, the short answer is that it's a ton of fun and it feels great and I love it. Uh, the longer, more expanded answer is that we, we get to those levels progressively, incrementally. So if, if someone comes to us with an idea like, like that one or like Luke Aiken's project or, or anything that we're going to try and test that's new, we work our way towards it, just like any test flight program. So you, do, you, you get to the edge of the known envelope and then you start increasingly moving outward from there. So by the time you get to the, the end result, the big stunt, what looks crazy and fantastic to people who were not witness to the progression, to us then it feels normal. Again, you're building that muscle memory. Your training builds on the day before and the day before and the day and you, you build up to those levels. So that part of it's fun, the progression of it, the, the intellectual challenge of solving problems and in many cases inventing new systems to get where we want to be. And it's just the whole process of it is a ton of fun in challenging in a lot of ways. But then for me, the big thrill is the physical act of going and doing it. Uh, you know, go fly a helicopter in a way that, that it's not necessarily designed to do and in a way that nobody else is really doing. Uh, it's fun to work towards, to, to get yourself out to a point where you're kind of by yourself. You're kind of in new ground. It feels amazing. So for those Stratos flights, where were you usually taking off? Where was the, the base sort of headquartered? We worked all over the place, but mostly in the Southwest United States. We did a whole bunch of the testing at two different uh, locations in Southern California. One of those is California City uh, that I mentioned earlier. Another one was a place called Taft. There's a skydiving center there. We did a lot of the initial testing. Then when we started going to higher altitudes, we, uh, we moved the, the test program to New Mexico, and that's where we did the, uh, the 76,000-foot jump and then a 96,000-foot jump and then worked up to the, to the final one. I do want to dig in a little bit into the Baja races, man, because that's just such an epic race. And the fact that you were part of that and some of those, the camera angles on that. And mm -hmm. I've written about that race a few times and people really push machines to the limit. When did you actually film those races? 
that was a few years back. That would might have been ten years ago or so. I did a few of them. We did the the thousand a few times and the five hundred a few times. I was working with a, a company called Bryles uh, back then, doing a lot of racing support. And I went down there with a guy named Lance Strump, who's uh, very experienced at racing in Baja or helicopter support for racing in Baja. So I was on a good team and I had good equipment. So. I got to chase some of the top drivers and riders, which is fun uh, because only the big teams really spend that much money to bring a helicopter for a chase or lead, whatever you're doing. So you end up working with the top drivers. So I flew for Robbie Gordon one year, which is amazing watching him. Oh my God, dude. Crazy. Followed Johnny Campbell's team, uh, but he had just retired. So uh, ironically enough, if you're a Baja fan, you know who Johnny Campbell is. He was in the helicopter with me and we were chasing his rider. So that was Talk about a surreal experience, right? You got the 10-time champion or whatever he is, one of the greatest to ever do it, sitting in the seat behind me. So it was, it was cool. And it's, it's really amazing to me how fast those guys go for so long. I mean, for hours on end, they're just full throttle across the, uh, the Mexican countryside. And it's cool to see. It's beautiful. You know, the Mexican desert, Baja, is, is beautiful. It's all, you know, the big rooster tails of dust behind all those racing vehicles, whether it's the motorcycles or the trucks or whoever it is, they maintain such a high speed and it's so beautiful down there. That Now that is surreal. That's one of those moments where you're going 110 knots and we're, you know, we work really low down there over those races in Mexico. I mean, I'm probably 100 feet AGL or less, more like 50 feet above the ground the entire day. So you're just ripping along as fast as the helicopter will go. And in the case of the, uh, the trophy trucks, they go faster than the helicopter does. So you kind of have to anticipate the corners and cut the corners off to, to stay in position. If you try to just weld yourself in formation on the truck, he's, Robbie Gordon will drive right away from you. It's too fast for a helicopter, that dude. Those trucks are absolutely insane, man. And some of that footage from those races, I just, I can sit there on YouTube and watch those races uh, for, for quite a while, man. It's just crazy to watch the capture. From the helicopter, you can hear the motor and you can feel it. When they're shifting gears, you can, you can feel the vibration of that motor, even through the noise of the helicopter and through the headsets and everything else. So it, it, it's a tremendous amount of energy that those trucks put out and what it takes to get something that heavy going that fast for that long. It's, it's really cool to be up close. I think a lot of people might have heard of the race, but don't understand sort of the structure of it. So can you tell us a little bit about like how that morning looks? Are you hanging out with the racers? Are you getting the breakfast with everybody? Or are you sort of loading up? I mean, how does, how do things kick off and how do things progress throughout the day? The races I was at in those years, there would be 20 helicopters or so. Everybody kind of launches and goes and loiters around the start in Ensenada. And then as you're Whoever your vehicle is you're chasing, as they go, then you pick them up and go. But oftentimes, there's coastal fog down in Ensenada. So uh, so Lance, our guy that, that kind of ran our helicopter team, and we'd go down there with multiple helicopters, he arranged for us to pre-position at a ranch above the, the town up in the mountains called Ojos Negros. Um, and that's where we would stage our helicopters. So our morning started really early, well before the start. We would drive all the way up to Ojos Negros and stand by there and then lift off above the marine layer and then catch them when they came up out of the fog. So that was pretty cool. Because, you know, we were with Johnny Campbell's team. They were the, the lead riders, so they were the first racers. So you're just looking at this dirt road, and there's nothing going on, and there's fog covering the whole – and the radio's chattering, and you're looking around, and there's just nothing happening. You can't see anything. And you hear all this action on the radio, and then all of a sudden here comes – our Honda rider coming out of the clouds and then you pick them up and then of course everybody else comes charging out and then the race is on. 
It was on all along. You just couldn't see it. But when they oh, came out, that, yeah. so all the races I did, we started up at Ojos Negros, and that's that's where our day started. That's awesome. And how long would those days be? So the, you can't fly it in the dark in Mexico, so we used every second of daylight. We flew, you know, we'd be running, waiting for the sun to come up, and then we'd be touching down uh, as the sun set. But, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a compressed experience. It's not five or ten days. It's 24 hours straight, a thousand, whatever long it takes to run 500 miles, that's about 10, 12 hours, whatever it is, that's a full day. And then the thousand is, of course, all the way through the night as well. So very intense experience. And it's fun because, you know, you're, you're hot fueling. We're, we're landing in places like in riverbeds and in fields or wherever we would cache our fuel out around the race course and land next to some drums. And there'd be somebody waiting there to help us pump jet fuel into the helicopter. You're listening on the radio to see where your guy is while you're refueling. And then you'd pick up and try to meet him somewhere. It was fun. It's a challenge. It was really cool. How's the vibe after you guys wrapped up for a day? Do you guys get to sort of all hang out or where were you guys chilling? Oh, that's one of those, you know, like when you're driving to Vegas and everyone's like, Vegas, Vegas. And then by the time you get there, you're ready to fall asleep. That was how that was. We'd land and tie down the helicopters and we're all high five. And yeah, that was awesome. Let's go drink a bunch of beer. And then you drink about a half a beer and go to sleep. So I love it. Man. I love it. Right to bed. That's the sign of a great day. Yeah. yeah. When you're too tired to have that celebratory beer. How'd you start getting into the film and TV work? I know you've worked on a bunch of shows. So how'd that start to occur? And do you have a couple of uh, landmark experiences in that world uh, before we get to extraction? Yeah, I started out when I first started flying. I mentioned that I got a job early on, which is kind of unusual. Uh, but the job I got, I was flying a news helicopter. So as everybody knows, those have gyro-stabilized cameras on them. So I started flying cameras really early on in my career. And, and making movies and flying news are completely different. But what I learned from flying the cameras... Uh, when I was flying a news helicopter is how much I enjoyed the challenge of trying to put the camera in the perfect place. And I really enjoyed taking on the, the, the greater mission, you know, not just working as a pilot, not just being a pilot, get you to where you want to go, but taking on the mission of what does the camera need? What story are we trying to tell here? I found that I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. So I started to pursue it outside of that job as well. And initially I started shooting live sports. So I, I, I shot out of blimps and airplanes and helicopters and any, any platform you can shoot from the air. Uh, I, I've probably tried it. Uh, and I covered a bunch of NFL games and major league baseball and racing and everything else. And it was, and that is kind of what led into more production. And over the years it's evolved into uh, all the way up to feature films. Tell us about some of those news experiences. We've all seen those LA car chases or those LA events. Did you ever participate in one of those captures? Oh, all the time. All the time. Yeah. I, I, did. I don't know how many car chases I covered, but it was a lot. <laughs> it was, there's a ton of those in LA because it's just such a wide open, spread out place that, uh, you know, you, everybody knows now that car chases can go all day. Yeah. And, and like you mentioned, when you are you know, covering a car chase or something like that, you're a journalist, you're, you're, you're a cameraman, you're trying to point the camera in the right position. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's counterintuitive in that sense that if, if a guy's going 100 miles an hour down the freeway, that's an easy one for us to cover because we're all going 100 miles an hour in the same direction, right? So you just kind of find a spot and you have visual separation. And it's, it's separated by altitude in the same way in that the police agency takes the, the bottom part of the, uh, the, the airspace and they'll say, hey, all your media guys stay above 1,000 or 2,000 or whatever they ask for. And we all say sure and everybody gets up there. Uh, the dangerous part is when they get off the freeway and they slow down to surface street speeds and they're making a whole bunch of turns winding through a neighborhood. So then now you have all these helicopters moving around trying to keep their shot and look out for each other. 
So I wouldn't say dangerous, but more exciting. It's it's uh, you definitely have your hands full when you're flying a news helicopter over a car chase in that sort of environment. He's going multiple directions and everybody's moving around. It takes a lot of coordination uh, and everybody's talking to each other. There's a tremendous amount of trust between those pilots, and you know they all they're all full time for the most part in most cities, so they all kind of know each other and they they know each other's tendencies. They're all talking to each other on the radio, so. There is a way to mitigate it, but uh, yeah, there's a there's a level of risk there for sure. I do remember one where it was it was like it was right out of a movie. They, they were in a an old style Bronco or Blazer, one of those big prior to the SUV era K5 Blazer, something like that. And they had just robbed a bank, so they had a bag full of money, and they were throwing the money out as they were driving. They were shooting at the police behind them on the freeway. So there's gunfire, there's bills flying around, and then they lit something in the car on fire. So now there's smoke and flames coming out of the vehicle. And then the guy got out and they stopped on the freeway. And then one of the suspects got out and engaged in a gunfight with the pursuing officer. So now you have an actual firefight with flames and bills blowing and cars slamming on the brakes. I mean, it was right out of an action movie. And that happened right in the, well, not in the middle of town. It happened in the northeast uh, San Fernando Valley, which is part of L.A., but uh, not right in the downtown area. Very much surrounded by homes and people and other cars on the freeway. And it's surreal when you're watching that unfold right in front of your eyes. I was in my you know years, in the, my early years of doing this, I was eyewitness to countless events like that where you're watching it live from a helicopter. So you're a little separated, but nonetheless, you're watching it happen live and it's Kind of surreal. I'm from a small town, so it was all a giant eye-opening experience for me. Of course, man. Of course. How does it feel to sort of like wrap up for the night and go home after that? Did you, <laughs> did you that did that feeling, that essence, sort of linger with you? Yeah, I uh, I would get home after the news shift at about eleven thirty midnight or whatever, and then my wife the next day would always ask me, "Why did you stay up so late? Why don't you just go to bed when you get home?" And I said, "You can't, you can't do that, and then just come home and lay in your bed and go to sleep." So uh, I became kind of nocturnal in those years. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. What was your what was your decompression method? Everyone's got a uh, TV show or a music or what was it? Uh, in those days, Discovery Channel was, uh, they had all kinds of great stuff. So I'd watch some of that, maybe have a beer and work my way into bed. Great Adventures is lucky to have partners that share our love for a good story, like Whistlepig Whiskey. They're American rice perfected in the beautiful Vermont countryside. I've been to their farm, I've seen the process, and a lot of care goes into creating each glass. It's also the perfect nightcap after a day in the wild. Check them out on Instagram at Whistlepig Whiskey. So tell me about the first couple TV projects that you were in. I mean, those are, you have a bunch of shows obviously on, on the credits. Were you a fan of any of these or did you become a fan of them after? You know, it's funny, all the shows that I was a big fan of, the ones that kind of were uh, inspiring to me to want to fly, they were all off the air by the time I started working. So talking about Riptide, Magnum PI, you know, those are the kinds of shows where I would watch those and go, man, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to go fly a helicopter. I don't care why I'm flying it or what I'm doing or what the mission is. I just want to go do that. So th those inspiring shows, I didn't get to work on any of those. Those were long gone by the time I started working. Uh, so every time you're on a show, you kind of think to yourself, gosh, I hope this turns into one of those big hits, one of those iconic, you know, known for the helicopter action type of shows. And we've worked on a few of those. We do, we do one called SEAL Team, and there's tons of helicopter action in that. We work on SWAT. There's a ton of helicopter action in that one. 
Uh, there's a new one called 68 Whiskey that we just did. That one has, it's basically, it, the story is all built around a helicopter crew. So I've been, I've been fortunate that I got to jump in on a bunch of that action recently. SEAL Team, I'm a big fan of that show, and, and David Boreanaz was actually on the show a while back, and he's, he's one of the good ones for sure. So what was that experience like? The first one I worked on was a pretty big one. We had two Hueys that day and then a camera ship. Kevin LaRosa Jr. is a big aerial coordinator who I work with a lot. He's the one who hired me on the show. Uh, he was flying the camera ship that day, and there was all kinds of action. But it was really fun to, to meet David, too. You say he's a good guy. He, uh, he's a hockey player, so he and I had played hockey together before. And, uh, but I didn't really, you know, you, you, when you play hockey, there's kind of this code you don't talk about work, right? But I, I knew his face and I was looking at him. I thought, man, I play hockey with you. So I walked up to say hi to him, and, you know, and he's looking at me like, oh, here we go. This guy's going to walk up and tell me how he loves the show. And then I was like, hey, do you play on Sunday morning? Oh, yeah, I know you. So it was cool. It was a nice moment that we had there in the middle of all that action. Yeah. That's hockey crazy. reunion. I want to get into extraction now. So, this is a massive film, you know, number one U.S. trending movie right now on Netflix. Good for all you guys. Sam Hargrave killed it on this. And when the project first came down the pipeline, how did you feel? How did the work come to you? And uh, what was the experience like initially? Uh, well, the work came to me the way a lot of my work does through Kevin LaRosa Jr., the aerial coordinator that I just talked about. He said, hey, I, uh, I'm, he was shooting Top Gun 2 at that particular moment when this one came up. So, he was unable to go, so he asked me to go in his place, and I'm really happy that he did because it turned out to be a great experience. But the scene that we shot was the big firefight on the bridge, and we filmed it in Thailand. So they called me and asked me if I was available, and there's a lot of documentation check to make sure you're good to go to Thailand and fly there and all that. So we got all through all of that, and I ended up there, and uh, I went with, with a team of guys that I work with a lot, uh, Kevin LaRosa Sr. and a really top-level pilot named Alex Anduze who's a, uh, he's a well-known Black Hawk pilot, Sikorsky test pilot, you know, just a, just a great guy and a good pilot. So he and I went over there together with Kevin Sr. And uh, we did all that, the flying sequences there. And it was, it was a lot of fun. We had three helicopters there. I was flying the camera ship. Uh, so I was the one doing the, the filming of the other helicopters and of all the action on the ground. And we were working uh, over in a little town on a bridge over a river. So most of the flying we were doing was, was over water and in very close proximity to the bridge. So we're kind of dollying along the bridge while all the pyro is going off and everything. And Chris does a lot of the action himself. So uh, there, there was one moment where I was flying next to the bridge and I'm flying sideways with the camera oriented and the running gun battles going down the bridge. So there's all this pyro going off, cars flipping, everybody's shooting guns. And there's a helicopter on the other side of the bridge with stunt guys shooting back. So there's a lot happening, a lot of smoke, a lot of fire and everything else. And Chris is in the very center of it. And my camera is 20 feet away from him. And I'm kind of dollying along with him. And I had this little fleeting thought in my mind. I'm looking at him going, man, that is a good looking human being. There is no question how that guy became a movie star. He doesn't look like the rest of us. So that was kind of a funny moment in a big action scene. He was busy jumping over cars and shooting people and all that. But it was, uh, you could see the movie forming right there in front of your face. It's really cool. So when you first land in Thailand, what's the schedule like? How much time do you have to actually prep for a shoot like that? Okay, so it's a, about a 24-hour run to get to Thailand, right? So we, we get there and the local time was about 3 in the morning and we were driving in the dark. We went about 50 miles west of Bangkok into that little town and got to the production hotel. 
arrived at 3 a.m. and breakfast was at 8.30 and we ate breakfast and then went straight to the set. So uh, we got right to work. Within within six hours of landing in Thailand, I was up in a 4.12 scouting around the location, looking at the spots we were going to shoot and everything. And You know, if you describe it, travel for 24 hours, don't sleep, get in the helicopter, get to work, it sounds awful, but you're so excited to get to work and Thailand's beautiful and there's helicopters everywhere and everything's going on. You're just, just so eager to get to work that you don't feel tired at all. It, just, it was, I was was happy to be there, happy to get to it, and, uh, and and drinking it all in. I had never been to Thailand before, so for me, that was a first. And uh, working with a big crew like that, the first time you, you know come over the trees and see the set, you're like, wow, this is going to be fun. And it was. Absolutely epic. They send you previs, they send you script notes, and, you know, what did they hand you to sort of get your mind around what was going to be happening? Or is it pretty much, you know, on site, analyze what's going on here and, and make my moves? Normally, you do go through a lot of storyboards and you look at the previs and you know exactly what it's going to look like and where you're going to be and all that. In this case, uh, a lot of that was kind of on the fly. And also, we were landing in an area that was remote from the bridge itself. We couldn't land right at the set. So uh, we weren't able to go there and talk directly uh, with Sam or with Chris. So we were, you know, about a half a mile away at this school kind of over by ourselves. And that's where our landing zone was. So in this case, uh, the stunts, the moves, everything was all pre-rehearsed and Alex and I worked uh, all that out with, uh, with Kevin Sr. on the ground. And, and in terms of what we were going to do, we, we knew that part of it and we had rehearsed it and briefed it and everything else. But in terms of what it was going to look like, that we didn't really know until we got out there and started seeing it and looking at it. And Which is unusual. Usually you do have a really good idea, but in this case it was a little more uh, seat of the pants, which was fun. It makes it even more fun. Absolutely, man. So how much time did you guys actually have out there to complete the scene? I think we were shooting for six or seven days in the air and on the ground, you know, all day, every day for those for those days. They kind of compressed all the aerial stuff and the big final pyro scene there. They, they had saved all that and put everything together where it needed to be to, to get all that all at once. And that's what we did. There's a lot going on in that scene, man. As you know, it's like <laughs> helicopters are going down. You know, people are people are firing, you know, rocket launchers at you. I mean, it's crazy. So how's it how's it feel to sort of be around that? Again, you mentioned noticing Chris on the bridge, but does it? It's got to feel a little surreal, right? You're like, okay, this is. This is crazy. Yeah, you know, you're so focused on on what you're doing and flying your aircraft and being safe and ma maintaining your clearance and your position and giving the camera what it wants. You don't have a whole lot of time to really look around. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're really firing all those guns. Of course, they're blanks, but you can hear them and you can feel the concussion. The, a lot of those rockets were, were actual rockets being fired. They don't have warheads on them. But they're, they're, a lot of that is what you see on screen is actually happening in front of your face while you're flying along. So... I'm used to filing paperwork with the FAA saying that we're going to close this bridge. We're going to do this. I'm going to fly this close to this building and this other helicopter and all that. So for me, that part of it is not normal, but it's something I've kind of seen before where you make this huge plan that sounds fantastical and crazy. And then you work into it and it's methodical. Like we were talking about before you incrementally get to that place. It's fun, but it's also you're, you're just hyper-focused trying to make sure that you do exactly what you need to do. You know, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do to put a helicopter in the exact spot that you want every single time consistently with a hundred other factors going on around you. So it's exciting, but 
for me, other than the moment where I was noticing what a handsome guy Chris was, which my wife thinks is hilarious, it's more about concentrating on executing exactly what you are supposed to do and being exactly where you're supposed to be and hit your mark at the perfect time. Because when you look at a set with that, the scope of that, all those people, all that pyro, all the other helicopters, everything else, you're thinking to yourself, I am not going to be the one who screws this up. I'm going to do my part perfectly because I don't want to let all these people down. So I'm sure everybody on the set, if there's a thousand people, they're all thinking the exact same thing. I am going to crush my little slice of this action. And do they give you a little early look? Do they give you a little sort of early pick of this is how the sequence played out and, and how eager are you to actually see how the sequence plays out in the cut? Uh, I'm very eager to see it. I still haven't seen it. My plan was to watch it last night. I ended up working. So I was flying all night last night and I was, I was flying earlier today. I haven't had a chance. So uh, I, I plan to watch it as soon as I can, which hopefully will be this afternoon. But no, I haven't seen it. I, uh, I saw what we shot that day because we, we look at all the footage when we land. We go over everything we got. So, you know, you make sure you hit everything you needed to hit and all that. Uh, but I haven't seen it all put together and I'm really excited to see it. I've, I've heard a lot of my friends have seen it. There's a lot of chatter online. They say how great it is. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing the final product. Yeah, man. Congratulations. It, it looks great. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I wrap this thing up with two questions. The first one is, if I hand you a plane ticket, or maybe you could jump in a helicopter, you could go anywhere and do anything right now, where would you go? Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, I'd have to think about that. I love Hawaii. I know that. And I love flying in Hawaii. So maybe I would go there and, and fly. I have, I have a good buddy, Josh Lang, who has the ultimate job in the world. He flies a 500 painted like Magnums and he works on the North Shore and flies all day and surfs and plays in a rock band. He's like a genius, the best life in the world. So maybe I would take that ticket and fly and join Josh and go work with Josh. That sounds beautiful. Just spend all day doing that uh, Jurassic Park helicopter ride, you know, through uh, Kauai. That's one of the places he goes, that valley. He takes his passengers there, and I've, I've done it with him. It's so much fun. Beautiful. And the last question is, if I say the perfect sunset, what place comes to your mind? For me, that's Oxnard, California, Hollywood Beach, because that's home. And I love sitting out on the beach watching the sunset. My dogs run in the ocean, and then as soon as it gets dark, I walk inside. Perfect. Thanks for listening, guys. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe and leave a quick review on iTunes. Suggest it to a friend who could use a little travel inspiration. If you have a travel question or suggestion on someone I should chat with, just hit me up on my social channels at Charles Thorpe and at Adventure Podcast. New episodes will be dropping every Friday, so keep checking in for the next. Until then, safe travels.